Welcome to the Trapola Podcast. I'm Dan Runcy. Our guest today is the founder, CEO of Heavy Sound Labs, founder of Grand Hustle Entertainment, one of the investors back in All Def Digital, Jason Jeter. Welcome to the podcast, man. Dan, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast. So, you know, it's pretty exciting to be here with you. No, I'm glad you could come through. And I mean, I feel like people that have been following hip hop and looking at your career for a while. I mean, you've been a veteran in this game for a minute now. And you started Grand Hustle with TI when you were both really young. Let's start there. Back then, you knew that you wanted to get into the music industry. I mean, you had internships early on. What was it specifically that had you focus on to say, not only do I want to be in this industry, but I want to ride with this guy, T.I., and I want to get into management. I knew I wanted to be in the music business because that's pretty much all that I knew. I grew up in New York, growing up throughout the 80s and 90s, you know, in New York City, and think hip-hop was just exploding everywhere. Specifically, New York was the epic center of that, right? You know, the founding, the Bronx. I lived in the Bronx for a few years. I'll tell a story. Joski Love lived in my buildings. I lived in Park just in the Bronx. You know, there were a lot of rappers in my building, Sweet T and Craig G was around there. It was just like a lot of rappers, you know, it was like rap everywhere, you know? So for me, it was just something that I just fell in love with at a very early age, you know, the culture, I saw the movie Crush Groove. And that's really when I was exposed to the business side of things. I tell the story. I was born in Brooklyn, born into an apartment full of records on Eastern Parkway, right across the street from the Brooklyn Library, the Botanical Garden, you know, the Brooklyn Museum. My father was a record collector and he was a DJ. He made tapes for people within the community. So for me, once I saw the movie, that's really when I got exposed to the business side of the music business. But being born in an apartment full of records, some of the first things that I started reading were the back of album covers. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and reading credits, you know, so I was already kind of conditioned in a certain way, just being that I knew who engineers were, and what mastering was, and just these things that a young kid typically didn't know, especially during this time when, you know, information wasn't as readily available as today. So fast forward, I get internships, which really also solidifies this is i don't want to just be a fan of the culture and participate in the culture i actually want to contribute to the building of the culture you know in turn to arista records and my senior year in high school in new york and during this time bad boy was on fire you know this is 1995 bad boy was on fire the face records you know was also distributed through Arista. That, that company was on fire. Rowdy Records was just starting up in, out of Atlanta, Dallas, Austin, and he was doing his thing. So, you know, it was great. Man, I interned for Jeff Burroughs, who went on and ran Bad Boy Records. That was it. That was me seeing like, hey, I can get paid really well doing what I love to do. It only makes sense now. And you had one of these internships when you were in high school, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of stretched the truth a little bit, you know? (laughs) So I was going to high school in Montclair, New Jersey at Montclair High School. And most of these internships, they want you to be in college. I literally just kind of worked some finesse in, and I said I was at a freshman at Montclair State University. And that's how I got my internship. And I would come after school, I would get on the bus and leave, you know, high school, boom, right out of school, early days, and shoot over to the city on the bus and literally work for free a few days a week and actually pay to go and work for free a few days a week. So yeah, that was my first start, my first inside look at an early age, you know, and that was really beneficial because it really truly helped me really decide this is what I want to do for sure. 
Well played. No one had to teach you the hustle. You had it from the jump. Absolutely. Grew up that way, for sure. Talk to me about how you and Tip connected. I eventually made it to Atlanta and started working at Patchwork Recording Studio. Patchwork was a new, young studio. It existed in a house. They operated out of house. And upstairs was independent record label. They had artists Razkaz, Mean Green, rest in peace to Mean Green. He just passed a week ago. And a guy named Mr. Voodoo. And then downstairs, they had a recording studio. I interned upstairs, worked records at College Radio. And then downstairs, I worked the front desk. So as I worked the front desk, I kind of just was in the intersection of all traffic working this front desk, you know? So I'm meeting producers, artists, A&Rs, managers, entourage who also become people of their own success and time. And I met DJ Toomp, you know, DJ Toomp was a local producer out of Atlanta and he was a super dope producer. And we began to form a relationship outside of the studio. We started connecting. And I'm like, wow, this guy is, to me, I felt like he was like Manny Fresh. You know, he was like a Dr. Dre, a DJ premier. You know, he was the type of producer that could really hold down a whole sound, but he needed an artist to really display that sound on. So I told him how I felt. And I said, yo, let's find an artist to work on. Because me coming to Atlanta, already having this experience at Arista Records, I initially just really wanted to be an A&R. When I got to Atlanta, I said I have to position myself in the floor of traffic to meet people and because I didn't know anybody in Atlanta. <laughs> you know, I just knew that this is where it was at, so I just wanted to be where it was at. So I made that early bet and put myself in a recording studio, but then I knew that my next thing was, if I want to be an A&R, I have to be an A&R now. I can't wait for anyone to give me permission to be an A&R or ask anybody to be an A&R. I have to get out here and create something, <laughs> you know, and this was going to make me an A&R, you know? This was actually my second experience. I had an experience before this that went really well. Ray Pawn, who came down, him and Power, shout out to Power, it's a good friend of mine. And they came down to Atlanta and he worked out of the studio and I ended up, I had producers, you know, so I ended up providing a producer, a guy named Trife, shout out to Trife. And he ended up doing like six songs on Raekwon's album, Immobilary. So these experiences were kind of all leading up to this TI scenario. With DJ Toomp, we met, hit it off, agreed to go get an artist, and eventually found an artist, young TI. And we both thought that he was dope. He had some songs recorded with his friends. You know, he had a crew called the PSC. So he had records recorded and, you know, it'd be like five guys on a record and you're like, damn, who's that? Okay. That's him. You know, and then the next record, who's that? Oh, same guy. Uh, you know, so he just obviously stood out and we met, hit it off. And three days later, went to the studio and recorded records. Dope. Cause the first one was I'm serious, right? Correct. First record, the release was I'm Serious through Ghetto Vision slash LaFace slash Arista Records. And I think one of the things that sticks out about his career specifically from an early stage, he was not just about rap itself. And of course, he could be very successful continuing to do that. But he was diversifying what he was interested in, the businesses that he got involved with. And I assume a lot of that was you and him looking at it together, being like, hey, let's look big picture, broader. What do we want to achieve? What does this look like? 
Absolutely. For me, once again, I was a fan of the culture. I got to spend some time around Rockefeller very early from a distance, though, not like internally. But I had access to Relativity Records through a friend of mine, Hussein Fatal from the Outlaws, used to rap with Tupac. Rest in peace, Fatal. He passed a few years ago. He was a friend that I grew up with. You know, in Montclair, New Jersey, I grew up with Young Noble, Yaki Gaddafi, Fatal from the Outlaws, you know. And he got a record deal at Relativity Records and pretty much gave me an opportunity to just come be a part of his entourage. You have access. Get in when you fit in. And during this time, Rockefeller was in the same building. So this is like 96. And this is obviously early Rockefeller, right? Reasonable doubt. This is when you the, the stories that you hear about the E320 with the promo rap. It was actually in front of the building. I was there, <laughs> you know? So this was like early days. And this is me being a fan of the culture and trying to figure out my position in my way and seeing this stuff. So for me, I was the kid who went to Fat Farm on Prince Street when Russell Simmons opened that store up. So it's certain things that you just automatically know, right? Like, hey, when I get on and I get hot, you know, and especially if I have an artist that's marketable, we got to do this. We got to do that. We have to do this. Just from the people who have been successful that came before us. So therefore, we knew that when we had some traction in music, we're going to go into film. We're going to go into clothing. We wanted to go into liquor. <laughs> you know, like those are just like go to things to do if it made sense, you know? And I think Rockefeller did that well early on. I mean, of course, Rockaware, but then they had rock films, like state property. Like you saw the blueprint. Obviously, it's unfortunate how things folded out between him and Jay at the time, but the blueprint was there for how this is done. And even when I'm having conversations, you're having conversations with people building these labels now, they're all referencing what they had done. It's all the same thing, right? We know so often you don't have to invent something new. You just have to modify what's already there. I think it's cool with Tip as well. You're seeing a lot of that still come through. He's in these Ant-Man movies. He's with this Netflix hustle and flow. He has this expeditiously podcast as well. So he's continued to do that and reinvent. Like That's not something that's stopping for him anytime soon. Absolutely. As it shouldn't. It shouldn't stop for either one of us, right? Like, you know, it's just going to look different. You know, and that's really the thing I feel like as we grow and we evolve, things just look different. And you clearly have an eye, as you mentioned, you want to become better as an A&R. You saw the talent and tip. And then many years later, you see this kid from Houston with just 500 YouTube views named Travis Scott and discover that. How is that different in terms of the discovery and also how the landscape had changed at that point compared to how things were with tip a decade plus earlier? Like you said, this new evolution of change within the culture of hip hop, things going digital. I feel like he was pretty much the beginning of that, you know, at the cusp of that, of course, was already happening. But this was during that Tumblr era and seeing Travis YouTube video, 500 and change views. Was this a song he had or was it a personal video? This was a song. I can't remember the name of the song, but this was a song and he had shot, directed the video. And to me, I'm an aesthetic person. I'm like culture, lifestyle, all of that. You know, I look at an artist and, you know, like you said, with someone like T.I., like I get excited about artists that, okay, you can build multiple businesses around. And when I saw it, it was just so obvious. It just screamed it off the screen. And that's why I tell people creativity doesn't cost a lot of money at all. This guy, you know, he shot a video that was pretty 
do it yourself, right? <laughs> like it was definitely, <laughs> you could see that, oh, you did this yourself for real. But it was dope though. It was like, wow, I see the creativity. You have so many artistic type of references in the video, which made me say to DJ MLK, hey, can you get him on the phone right now? And jumped on the phone with Travis. It must've been like a Thursday. I'm in Atlanta. He's in LA on Saturday. I'm on Melrose at my friend's store, Chuck's Vintage at the time. She had a vintage denim shop. And I'm meeting with Travis in the back of her store on Saturday afternoon now, because to me, it was just urgent. When I saw him, obviously Kanye was like huge at this time. You know, this is 2012. Kanye's huge. And you hate to say it, but it's back to even like you said with the Rockefeller thing, right? You don't have to reinvent anything. There's definitely trend forecasting. So seeing what Travis was doing at this young age and seeing what Kanye was on this macro level, it was like a no-brainer, man. You know, so met with him on Saturday and I actually left. It's funny because I left before he did. I went back to Atlanta. Travis was supposed to meet with Atlantic Records on that Monday. He was supposed to fly to New York, meet with Atlantic Records on Monday. Of course, I gave my pitch and I got a little extra time to spend with him. And I left early. And I remember because I got back to Atlanta, I believe, on Monday. And he said, hey, I don't want to go to my meeting in New York. I want to come to Atlanta and get back up with you. And I flew him back down to Atlanta on Tuesday. It was so wild because he gets to Atlanta on Tuesday. And the next day, a friend of mine, Shani Gonzalez, she was working at Epic Records. Now, Reed had just kind of recently went over to Epic. Obviously, L.A. and I have history. Santiata, L.A. in 1999, <laughs> you know, and he and I had already been having a bunch of conversations. You know, hey, come help me build this label. I'm building Epic. So we were having those conversations already. Fast forward. I get this artist on Tuesday down to Atlanta. On Wednesday, Shani Gonzalez, who worked at Epic, calls me and she says, hey, I hear you have this guy, Travis Scott, who I'm thinking how do you know Travis Scott? Because he only has 500 views on YouTube, right? <laughs> so first I'm like, how do you know Travis Scott? But even more than that, how the hell do you know that he's with me right now? It's like, this is very weird, right? But it just shows you how things are. So Shani Gonzalez was an A&R at Epic Records. And her intern, he knew of Travis. I believe they were friends some kind of way. But he knew of Travis. And he turned her on to the music. And she was like, oh, shit. She saw what I saw. So literally, she calls me on Wednesday, and I'm kind of just laughing. I'm like, wow, this is happening. This feels really good, right? <laughs> like, the way it's flowing right now, you know? So Shani Gonzalez flies to Atlanta on Thursday, and she says, L.A. Reed's on vacation this week. So she says, I'm coming to Atlanta, and I'm not leaving until we go to New York. So the following Monday, I believe... LA's back in the office. We all go to New York and we do a deal. We do a deal and everything just lined up so easily. But I'll say this though. LA Reed was such a great executive. LA, Jimmy, Iveen to me were like the best music guys for real. If they believed in an artist, if they believed in talent, they would invest in talent. Of course, it doesn't always work, but clearly they've done it and it's worked really big. And something that L.A. told me before, he says, you know, they say I spend a lot of money, but I invest in artists that last for careers and they're around far after when I leave. That was the dopest thing 
for Travis that no one probably ever mentions, but just the fact that L.A. Reid was such a music guy that if he believed in you, the executive, if he believed, he's going to invest. A lot of times when 99% of the CEOs would say, this just doesn't financially make sense. L.A. would always take that risk. And, you know, I think that that played a huge part in Travis's development because you got to think this guy was shooting videos with like Nabil on day one. You know, (laughs) it was crazy. But, yeah, that's the Travis story on how they came about. And it happened super fast. And clearly after that, he went and he met Kanye. And clearly Kanye saw the same things that I saw. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, his ascension and his own expansion into all sorts of business and interests has been impressive as well. I'm sure that everyone was bullish. Everyone thought that he was going to blow up and be successful. Did you all see everything that's happened to him since Astroworld came out? Were you expecting that level of success? I think with everyone, right? When you're getting behind someone, you're buying into their dream. So you see this success. You see it possible. You have to because you're co-signing, you're buying in. And if you don't see it, what are you doing it for? So remember, I'm a guy who I've never really been into just chasing like singles. And once again, just chasing multiple artists, you know, like you take someone like Killer Mike, you know, different type of success, but same thing, invested in Killer Mike very early, saw Mike very early and saw him as this figure that, yo, one day this guy has a potential to lead our culture and sit on CNN and talk. And yo, if I wanted anybody to go on hip hop's behalf to the white house and talk to the president, send killer Mike. Like I believe this early on. Right. <laughs> you know, and it's a great thing when you see that, you know what, now the world sees, now this is all developed and now the world sees what I saw very early on. So, I mean, yeah, I absolutely saw it for him as well as others, you know, I'll be honest. I was pleasantly surprised and not necessarily in a bad way, but I've often made the analogy with him to someone like James Harden. When Harden was on the Thunder, saw the talent, knew he was there, and same thing with Travis, even when Rodeo and Birds of the Trap dropped. Although, like with Harden, like after that Rockets trade, I wasn't expecting MVP caliber, like championship expectations. And similarly with Travis Scott, I knew he was going to be good. After Drake, I think he would be the highest selling rapper right now if everyone was going to drop an album like on the same week. I wouldn't have expected that. And I'm glad to see it. Now we're seeing him on Tenet Movie. We're seeing him Netflix. He's everywhere. You got this McDonald's thing coming. It's dope. It's crazy, you know. But I mean, let's be honest, too. You know, it's easy to say that. And it's understandable to say that. You know, I didn't see it because, you know, he added in some social effects, too. Right. Some social elements as well, which were rocket boosters you know when you think about the relationship and things <laughs> and nature, right? so, i mean that surely only helps you know in, in the number of popularity in today's world right right that reminds me of when astro world dropped i don't gotta say who but certain artists were upset about how kylie jenner's promotion of astro world helped as opposed to other artists since then though you've gone on a pretty dope and interesting transition, both with the companies you've started and what you've been doing recently in the past few years. You started Heavy Sound Labs, which is a music incubator, and it's a new model that in many ways, I think, reflects the generation that we are in music and the landscape of just how things are. How did that idea come about? I started Grand Hustle early. 
what I was like 22 years old, 21 years old or something like that, you know? And fast forward throughout this time, now it's 2020. And you just say, what does the space look like now? How will it look over the next five years? I can't even think about the next 10 years. <laughs> like, right? like things happen so fast. It's crazy now, you know, especially with technology. Disruption is real, right? <laughs> you know, but as I started making investments in the tech space, I started learning about venture capitalism and really realizing that I had always been a venture capitalist. And I've said, damn, I've invested in so many artists, clearly some that have made it big and some that, damn, they didn't make it. So I say to myself, as I start seeing certain startup studios, Betaworks and Science and these different companies, and I start comparing founders to artists. To me, I look at an artist as a huge corporation. Once again, TI, look, you diversify going to all of these other businesses, Travis Scott, all these other businesses. So this is a huge corporation. So an artist that truly makes it is very similar to a founder, right? Yeah, talent is real, but do you have that relentless energy? Ah, like as they say, do you have grit? So it's, it's just very similar. And I just started comparing what I was learning to what I had already known. That led to me saying that, hey, you know what? I want to invest in artists in this way, more strategically, you know, instead of just blindly saying, hey, here's artist A, I'm going to invest X amount of dollars. I want to say, you know what? I need like multiple artists. And now we have so many tools out here that we can read the data on, right? And make more educated investments. Now we have numbers, right? <laughs> Spotify, transparency, YouTube, like all of these statistics now. So I say, I need to really just kind of mentor these artists, give them information, tell them as much as I can possibly tell them, which is going to be more than most people will tell them, and really create a community where we can also collectively collaborate. Because also started thinking about the challenges around new artists. I've always succeeded with new artists. Like you said, my history is finding artists that no one really knows, you know, and developing those guys. You know, I'm not really that interested in artists once they're like there, honestly. I'm an entrepreneur in the sense of, in every sense of, I like to build things. And when it's built, I want to do it again. So I started thinking about my career and what I actually enjoy and what I really don't enjoy as much. So I said, okay, cool. This is what I like to do. I like to build artists. So I'm going to develop and I'm going to be very specific about the ways that I'm going to develop. And now this should make my process more scalable. How can I automate information using the tools, resources that we have available for us? I said, how can I create team community? So I ended up creating a website, heavysound.com and artists can go click the artist tab. And then there's a series of questions to design to flow as if we're having a conversation. Hey, upload your YouTube. And I'm really looking at the ability that an artist has to produce content. I'm not even so much looking at what are your numbers? Because they're all early stage artists. But to me, I feel like if you have the ability, if you're like consistently, we listen to the success stories, right? I went to see Russ when he was in the basement years ago. Carol Lewis called me. Hey, you need to meet this guy, Russ. I had no idea who Russ was. Nobody in Atlanta hardly knew who Russ was. At this time, I went to see Russ and, and I was thrilled by his conversation back then. 
you know, and I'm so happy and proud for the kid because he stayed down with everything he told me back then. So consistent. In terms of the model for Heavy Sound Lab, so as you mentioned, artists apply as if they're having a conversation through the form that you have. What are the next steps for them? Is it a evaluation process to then become part of the Heavy Sounds crew? So artist applies. Now it's the evaluation process. It's like I was saying, we're looking at, do you have the ability to consistently put out product content? Are you on all of the relevant platforms? And of course, what does your music sound like becomes a part of it as well. We have our heavy crew and these guys can also vote on records and say if they like a record or not. We onboard specific artists and you come into our distribution phase. Once you come on as an artist, it's three phases. There's distribution, amplification, and then growth. We start off at an 80-20 split for distribution. For a 20% distribution fee, we give them resources. Of course, we paid out money, collect money, upload all your stuff on the DSPs. We do those typical things, right? You know, we have a web app that we're launching in a couple of weeks now, actually, that we've been building that will allow them to monitor all the traction from everywhere that they're at on one platform and compare the information, compare the data. We also give them office hours. So we give them availability to our team. Now they get office hours. You can talk to uh, team members one-on-one. You get help with your artwork and resources. We give you strategy on releasing stuff. We critique your music if you want that. You don't have to listen to us, but we're saying that we want to fast track your development process. We want to put a lot of strategy to it. And within 24 months, we want to partner with a major company. So the goal is to have the artist sign with a major label or at least have some type of partnership. The goal is to have a partnership with a major label. So once again, we go from 80-20, we put out music at the right time based on traction. We uh, shift up upstream to a 50-50. At that time, as a 50-50, now we put financial resources behind your music, of course, to amplify what you have going on. And our goal is within 24 months to partner at a major label. Really simple. Of course, that partnership can look a million different ways. One artist can say, hey, I don't want to go to a major label, but I'll respond to that and say, my thing is I want to deal with big artists, huge artists. You know, that's really the business that I want to be in. There's more than one way to get there. And a huge artist can look a million different ways, but ultimately huge is what I want. You know, so you can go and do a a million kind of different deals, a distribution deal with a major, but at the end of the day, you want major resources so that we can get on that big platform. And I do think that's one thing that people miss out on a bit from this whole conversation of indie versus record label, right? Of course, it's very timely with artists wanting to maintain ownership of everything, but we were just talking about Russ a second ago. Up until recently, he had the distribution with Columbia. That's how he was able to at least achieve some of the higher levels of mainstream success that he's done in the most recent years. It'll be interesting to see what he does moving after this point, but everything he does moving after this point in many ways benefit from what he was able to achieve by having a distribution partner in Columbia. Absolutely. But my point really with Russ really was more so the strategy that that he created to get to, you know, the point of building his audience, literally saying, Hey, you know what? I'm releasing a record every Tuesday for 12 months. So, you know, just creating a rigorous routine for real. 
programming out your audience to speak to them in a way that we know the structure. And I anticipated on Thursday nights at eight o'clock watching the Cosby show growing up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, it's like, you got to set something there, you know? And I think that, you know, when it comes to new artists, do it yourselfers, we know that that segment is whew, outpacing every other segment in the music business, do it yourselfers. But I think that we also know that they're young, they're new. So they're learning as they go. We can learn a lot by listening to them, of course, because they're coming with new ideas and thoughts, but there's a lot that they can learn from us as well when it comes to strategy and things of that nature. So in terms of the incubator model specifically, as you mentioned, you have the 80-20 split for that first phase, then things go to 50-50 after that. And then hopefully by the time they transition to the major label, it would then revert back to 80-20, at least for that final phase. After that point though, you do maintain some level of equity or some level of ownership in what the artist does moving forward, right? At that point, you know, it goes back to 80-20. So we do have a 20% equity cut in the artist deal. And for us, what we're really looking to do, what we're excited about is developing artists to be creative entrepreneurs. So we, we spoke about Travis, we spoke about Tip. Those guys are creative entrepreneurs. What you learn around artists, just by looking at the history of artists, Artists typically is going to get to a point when they really want to own all of the art themselves for the most part. So for me, I'm banking on the idea of once I'm in business with this young artist, let me help you develop the foundation of your business. Sure. I'll take a back seat, a minor cut, but I'm truly excited about the businesses around you that I can help you develop and actually be 50, 50 partners with you on. TI and I built the business of cool 12 years later, we have a great business. We have another business that came <laughs> out of that business called Hustle Gang. Eight years later, a great business. So I'm excited about things like that. I'm excited about what's the evolution of hip-hop businesses. Your podcast is great. You speak about these things. But to me, Grand Hustle, I've done that. Now I can't do new things the old way. So now with all of these resources that we have with the cannabis industry here now as an option with obviously gaming, with tech being what it is, I'm excited about all of those things. So to me, it's like, yeah, I'll help you as an artist, help you get right early while you're young. You have a young team. We'll provide mentorship for your young team. You go on and, and you partner with whatever major label. Yes, we're still here for you. To me, it's really about getting in business with an artist and a manager. It's about equipping that manager and being a back office for this manager and wrapping our arms around this artist, but now actually going into other lanes that a young manager does not have time to explore. <laughs> a young manager is trying to figure out the day-to-day -day and, and they're consumed with all of those things that it takes to run this business now. And most young managers truly need back office. You know, So for us, that's really how we really envision this independence is real. A lot of people truly do want to have ownership and that's great. That's okay. But success is what we also need to have the ability to gain or else we're going out of business, right? <laughs> For sure. And I like how you are breaking this down. You see what's happening in other areas. You're following what's happening in tech. You're following what's happening in other aspects of entertainment. Are there lanes and areas that you've yet to explore, but you're seeing and you're like, we got to look at that next. We got to follow what's going on. Wow, man, look at the beauty industry. Talk about lanes. I mean, to me, when you think about female artists and you think about just 
the beauty industry, man, to me, that is super exciting. Of course, the cannabis space is super exciting, as we know. Gaming, clearly, so many opportunities, and it's only at the beginning when it comes to integrating culture and music artists into that space, you know? So that's something that I've been very much so exploring and building in gaming space, animation slash fantasy. When it comes to that, I feel like for hip hop, now it's time for us. There's so many subcultures. There's so many interest points. You think about anime and the fascination within our culture of that. We still have only really seen the boondocks for real, <laughs> you know? Like, so, I mean, I feel like, man, it's just great times. And those are the ways that I'm thinking about the future and what's next, you know, because I feel like that's what it takes. It takes the next young kid to see someone do something to spark the interest and take it even further. And I think that there's a big opportunity as well with you recently getting involved with All Def Digital. You're one of the investors there. And in many ways, that when it was initially started was, yes, this is the future of entertainment, looking at things specifically from a hip-hop, Black culture perspective. And of course, they've had some transitions in recent years, turnover and all that. But there's a new opportunity to be able to push things from a media perspective. And I do think that media, now every company is being involved in media in some way, but there's a real opportunity to do that, especially the interest of this culture and how that's continued to grow and grow over time. It's super exciting. All Deaf is actually the largest African-American-owned publisher on YouTube as well as Facebook right now. So we had the opportunity to purchase this new media company, which definitely had a few different transitions in the past. But for me, seeing the audience that they built and knowing how expensive it is, right, to build an audience, <laughs> right? Like you talk about content. Oh, man, it's so expensive to build an audience. You have to clearly invest a lot of money in the process of production content, but also it takes a lot of time, too. Seeing all deaf and having this, I think it's a great benefit because now we have a super relevant audience, you know, hip hop slash comedy. We made the acquisition at the end of 19. Obviously, the pandemic started at the beginning of 2020. So that immediately brought a challenge on for us. And we've been still swimming, though, rebooting shows and doing what we can via Zoom and things of that nature. But super exciting because the future is so bright on that end. You know, now, like you said, so many companies have another option, another place to speak to. We have a great cast of comedians. You know, when you look at the success of other companies, other new age media outlets like Barstool and such, we have a lot of potential. So you've been following what Barstool has been doing in the space? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It's funny because... I think that there's a lot of people that will turn their eye at Barstool. And I'll be honest, I did for years as well. Like friends would send me clips and I'm like, you got the wrong one. Like, I'm not going to interested in this, but we see where things are going and we saw how much money this company just sold for. What is it? A year ago or not even a year ago. It was earlier this year that they sold to that gaming company. There's something about this polarizing brand and identity that has a bit of a bad boy image in its sector. But what does that mean? How does that attract? And what does that mean for the audience loyalty and the value that it has? There's something there. And I do think that regardless of how you feel about the content itself, there is 
value and understanding how they build what they've done. Yeah, I think you hit it spot on, man. It's a different thing. It's a different consumer. But when you look at those audiences, they're so loyal. They're so loyal. So it's like, okay, when you see the numbers, you got to be smart enough to know, forget about my personal views, so to say, you know, let's look at these numbers. What can we do to help these guys grow these numbers even more? You know, now you got to put that hat on, you know? So I think that approaching all deaf in that manner totally makes it super unique in the culture. And once again, putting the strategy and, you know, real business behind it will make it super exciting and interesting, you know? So my guys, Sean Newsom and Cedric Rogers are running all deaf right now. And we look forward to these new times. I like that they got Kev on stage involved. He's hilarious. Kev on stage is great. Those guys, man, I mean, it's incredible. Like just on the comedy sector, you know, we know that within this culture, comedy is always right within black culture, within hip hop, however you want to call it. It's always been a cornerstone, you know, and what Russell has done has started for years, you know, in the culture. I mean, it's great. All deaf as a brand, you know, the history and the legacy in that sector it's interesting, you know, so now it's definitely about what we're going to do to reinvent and evolve it. Who are the artists on heavy sound labs that we all should be checking out? Who should we be seeing as the potential to benefit from what you've done and the community and all that to go to that next level? Man, it's interesting. Heavy sound, we've been building, we've been building the heavy crew, which is about 1500 members at this point. We're on Slack. We're talking all day. We're sharing information in different folders. We're offering these heavy talk one-on-one series, which is a one-on-one series with proven industry experts. You know, we're giving those things and giving all of this information. And on the artist side, we've been actually pretty selective because I consider this to be a luxury offering for an artist. This is not for everyone. You know, we're really making investments at an early stage and we have a team and a staff. So, so far we've partnered with an artist named All Started Great. He's out of Newark, New Jersey. He's super dope. Lyrical guy. Had a record that he put out with Benny the Butcher that did really well. And he's actually putting out some more records right now, more videos. So you guys can check him out. All Started Great. We have another kid, 47 Gino, young guy, 17 years old out of Miami, Florida. And he's in that young pocket and he's exciting. So, you know, if someone's into younger stuff, you could check him out as well. South Florida has been the wave for a minute. South Florida has been the wave. We partnered with a guy named Ralph Way. Super excited about. We haven't put out a record on him yet. We're about to put out a visual. This kid is from South Africa, lives in Massachusetts, young, 24 years old, I believe, and directs his own videos as well. Ralph Way, super dope. That's going to be very interesting. His story is... I'm excited about him as well. And then we've partnered also with a kid named Lango out of Baton Rouge. Lango, super dope. Produces. This kid is from Baton Rouge, lives in New Orleans, went to Xavier University, majored in biology, graduated, producer, and just kind of comes with a different perspective. So these kids that we're really partnering with at this early stage, we're serious about it, you know, and serious about really developing them the right way. For me, I do feel like I have a history and legacy that I want to upheld. I don't want to just do things just to be doing them. So we're using technology, but it still is the music business, you know, so I'm still kind of integrating both factors. 
you mentioned you had 1500 people in there now. How many people apply versus how many people have gotten in? On the heavy crew side, let me speak about that for one second, right? So the heavy crew is a collective of creatives. So people that want to be a part of the process, once again, anybody can go to heavysound.com. You can hit the heavy crew tab, series of questions, design. In my mind, this is the evolution of internship programs, the evolution of street teams. This is the modern day. I've been a part of both. I've had my own interns, had my own street teams, you know? So I've said, man, I've made great relationships at that early stage. And most executives that have success, they come down that path. What does that look like in today's world? It's digital, right? <laughs> like if music's being consumed and if artists are building digitally, how do I help the future executives build digitally? So we're no longer hanging up posters and giving out flyers and stickers. So now we're posting, we're hashtagging, we're retweeting, things of that nature. So for the heavy crew, the dopest thing about what I'm doing, which truly really sets me apart from anyone else, is literally the heavy crew. One of the biggest challenges for a new artist is no one knows me. So when I put something out, no one's retweeting my stuff. Even my friends aren't doing this mostly, right? You know, their friends aren't even really supporting them because it's not cool to support you until somebody else is supporting you. That's really kind of like how it is, you know? So in my mind, I said like, wow, in today's world, if I have a new artist and if I can create a challenge, if I have a community and I can say to my community, hey guys, we're going to release 47 Geno's record on Tuesday called No Mercy at two o'clock. Here's the artwork. We're going to all... Post this at two o'clock and hashtag no mercy. And now if I have 50 heavy crew members, 100, 200, 500, obviously as the community grows, those activation numbers will grow. But more than anything, even if a new artist has 25 people posting, that's a lot more than you have by yourself. (laughs) You know what I mean? So to me, you know, that's really how I'm looking at this heavy crew. And it's great because we share information. We kind of trade off on resources and Literally, man, it's becoming like a social utility to a degree for people who are going to be the future managers or currently young managers and want jobs and things of that nature. That's the best thing about it is they don't owe me anything. Me and my team, we're giving away the information. They can have an artist that they're managing and an artist could be somewhere else, not even on our label. So to me, I feel like no one's offering that. And I know that that's going to grow into something that's far more bigger than myself. So I'm happy to do it. That's dope. You're building community, man. You're building it in the right ways. Yeah, appreciate it, man. But that's what it's about in today's world, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, no, definitely. Yeah. Yep. Jason, this has been a pleasure. I'm glad you came on. Anything else that you'd like to plug quickly or let the Trapital audience know about? Nah, man. Thank you, Dan, for having me. Definitely keep doing your thing. And everyone, check us out at heavysound.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. Go to Apple Podcast, go to iTunes, leave a review, rate the podcast. I will screenshot and share the podcast ratings on Twitter and Instagram. That can encourage more people to share the podcast. And if this podcast is your first introduction to Trapital, then make sure you check out the rest of the content. Go to Trapital.co. That's T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L dot C-O. Sign up for the weekly newsletter. Get all the content 
content there and also shoot me a text that's also a great way to stay in touch with Trapola content you can text me dan runcy at 415-234-3074 thanks again see you next week